It's about connections, these small connections, constant connections. They're the roots of parenting a teenager, keeping a connection, because it is a time when you could completely lose that connection because everything is completely different from what you've just been through in their childhood. And I think, you know, watching things together, then chatting is a very strong connection. Well, that's Lorraine Candy, an award-winning journalist and parenting expert who wants us to understand that routine is a big part of keeping connected as a family. I'm Liz Earle. Welcome to this episode of the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, brought to you in partnership with TV Licensing. Now, I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. So do you currently have an empty nest? Are you a few years away but already getting upset at the thought of being left at home without the energy of your children around. Perhaps you're a couple of years in and want to make sure that you're really making the most of your exciting empty nest life. For me, well, I've done this a number of times already. You may know that my eldest, Lily, she's now in her early 30s, so it seems an age ago that I was settling her into her freshers week at uni and my first experience of doing a swoop around Ikea with scores of other parents parents, you know, similarly filling their oversized trolleys with duvets, pasta bowls, mugs, and my own essential, actually, a pair of wooden toaster tongs to prevent a hazardous knife down the toaster accident, along with Lily's own Unidigs essentials, which I seem to remember consisting mostly of colourful paper lampshades and bedroom fairy lights. Yeah. Well, her brothers and younger sister Brella seemed a little bit more straightforward, piling the car high with bedding and most of my bath towels. And by the time Kit went off last year, we were down to a simple bootload of home stuff and a guitar. Mind you, this was followed by an emergency mail order delivery of a few forgotten essentials, including such basics as a knife and fork and a Hello. Well, I so remember those days of packing the car, saying goodbye to each and every one of the family, including the pets, even the gerbils. They got a goodbye hug. And that final moment when we hugged goodbye and they went off without a backward glance. A good thing to see them happy and secure in their life choices. But boy, what a wrench coming home to the open door of a neat, tidy, but overwhelmingly empty bedroom is a bit of a moment for sure. And any parent of adult kids will know that our children tend to come and go in and out of the family home over the years. But the first time they leave, heading off to uni, well, that can be heart-wrenchingly painful, can't it? And it can be really hard to make space for all the things that we're feeling with so many practicalities to tend to. There's teaching them to use the washing machine. I'm not quite sure that I'm there with some of mine. Hoping and praying they might eat a vegetable or two in the months that they're away. I actually get around that one by sending the odd food parcel of green powders to make sure that breakfast shakes and smoothies are the order of the day. And if someone would only start a kefir subscription service, I would be one of the first to sign them up. Well, while on the topic of well-being, I do also slip helpful supplements into their sponge bag too. Vitamin D, 
omega-3s for brain power, magnesium, glycinate and L-theanine to help with stress and sleep, that kind of thing. So that's their physical health sorted. But what about their mental well-being? I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult to check in with my kids without overdoing it. I want the peace of knowing they'll be okay without being overbearing or limiting their independence in some way. And I'm really hoping that Lorraine will be able to share some advice on this in the episode. I found that having regular family rituals in the diary can really help us ensure that we're getting moments of connection with our kids. And our family ritual is tuning in to watch our favourite family TV shows together, wherever we are, at home, at uni, even across the world. There's always plenty of chat on the family WhatsApp group. And it's such a fun and easy way for me to check in, let the kids know that I'm here if they need me, while also giving some reassurance that they're doing okay. And before we dive into Lorraine's tips, I will add that if you want to watch TV with your children while they're away at university, you'll need to double check they've sorted their TV life. Licence. You can find all the details about whether your kids need to buy a TV licence at tvl.co.uk forward slash Liz. And here's what I learnt recently while sorting Kit out with his licence. So by law, students need a TV licence to watch or record TV on any device, be that a laptop, TV, tablet or even their phone. They also need a licence to watch any of the hundreds of programmes on BBC iPlayer. If your kids are in halls, they're unlikely to be covered by the hall licence while watching TV in their room. And if, like Kit, they're moving into a private house for their second year, they'll need to sort their TV licence out. So parents, this is your reminder to check in with your children and make sure that they've got this all sorted. Phew, we're done with our practicalities. Now let's get back to tending to our own feelings about our children leaving home and how we can navigate our constantly evolving relationships with our adult children. So let's hear it from Lorraine Candy, a writer and broadcaster specialising in parenting issues. She's the author of the best-selling book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only Mothers of Teenage Girls Know and the co-host of the hit podcast, Postcards from Midlife. As a mum of four, Lorraine has first-hand experiences of some of the issues that we'll be discussing today. Lorraine, a very, very warm welcome. Now, fans of your writing will know this, but for anyone who hasn't read the book, Paint a picture for me. What does life look like in the candy household? You're a mum of four. What's what's your age range? Well, at the moment, the age range is I've just, my eldest has just turned 21, which is a huge milestone actually for us, yeah, but unexpected. Same. And mm. um, my youngest is 12 and then in between have 16 and 19 and two are at university. They're just about to head off again back right. into their second and third year. And my son's just gone into sixth form and obviously my little one, little Mabel, as we call her, has gone into year eight, which feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, quite a momentous move as well. Doesn't it? Yeah, my youngest has just gone into year nine and yeah, I'm just packing one off to uni. So are you feeling, I've obviously got two older ones as well who've, you know, long Mm. gone, three older ones actually, no, they haven't long gone. They're like kind of boomerangs, aren't they? They keep coming back. But are you finding that kind of empty nest thing? Is that a reality for you? Slightly different because it was during the pandemic, so it was slightly odd for her. But the, the first time when we dropped off, 
I was completely shaken by it. I really didn't expect <laughs> to be so grief stricken when I came back home and I could, you know, mm. her big coat was still there because we, we dropped her. Obviously, it was very warm when we dropped her and her shoes, a lot of her shoes were there. And, you know, Sunday oh, lunch was yeah. one plate down. All these little tiny rites <laughs> of passage mm. were kind of evidence in front of me. And I had all her little pictures up on the wall from when she was little and everything and it really it really knocked me for six I think it was slightly better for uh, number two but in a way it was more overwhelming because I kind of knew how strong those feelings would be on that day you know when you drop them off when you walk away and and you sort of turn around and think well that's the end of childhood that was quite a shock and she's a long way away she's at a university in Glasgow so I knew I couldn't get to her quickly so yeah mm-hmm. I think it really changes as you will know Liz the dynamic at home as well the the kids yes. left and you know we went from six to five to four and it's all a slightly different dynamic now and I think particularly for your youngest you, you they have a different childhood from the eldest because they're not in a six anymore yeah. they're in a smaller you know, with larger families, they're in a smaller unit. And it's a very different, you know, all your routines change. And I guess growing up, you just don't envisage this, do you? You don't plan for it or see it or think about it. No, no. And there is always that constant reminder. You know, I, I Brella left home to, to live in London, you know, a little while ago. And every time I go up the stairs, her bedroom door is right at the top of the landing mm. and it's open. And I just walk in, you know, I walk past rather, and there's just this empty bed, you know, and beautifully neat, tidy room and <laughs> she's not there. So there's that constant reminder, you know, that that they've gone and it's it, it does take a while to process. And that's a very interesting yeah. point, actually, about the different dynamic for the youngest and their experience of childhood and growing up. We, you know, we often think about ourselves in this, but of course, every member of the family is going to be affected and will be feeling something different, which perhaps, you know, none of us think about addressing. Maybe I should actually go back and say to my youngest, you know, how do you feel about the house now? How does it feel to you? We we did do that actually with our youngest. We said, how do you, you know, all the routines will change. The morning routine will change. The mealtime routines will change. Bedtime will change, you know, and, and, you know, things like our telewatching habits and all of these habits suddenly change. And you, I think because we, the two went very one year after the other, we noticed it and I thought, well, it would be interesting. And actually a friend of mine who's a psychologist said, why don't you ask your youngest what she would like and, and, you know, rather than just letting it happen around you and see how she feels about it, because it's, you know, she's growing up with just a brother really. And and the others grew up in a more female household because there were three girls. So it's a sort of, you just have to sort of be aware of it, I think, rather than, um, you know, and, and think more about the kids and what their minds are going through and how they're changing and what their neurology is and all of that. Yeah, it's a it's good to think about it in advance, I think, and to engage your kids in you in it, in the emptinessness of it around. And also I said to her, I'm sad, you know, I'm very sad because, you know, they've gone and, and I loved having them here and I loved being part of their childhood and, and now they're not here anymore. <laughs> I think that's really empowering, actually, and a really good point, and and to share how we feel. So, uh, you know, it's not just kind of bottled up and closed, that it's actually open and and acknowledging it. I think that's very, very sage advice. Talking of sage advice, I was able to come to your book launch, and I actually, I have to say, I love the title of your book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? And I'm sure that parents to kids of a certain age, you know, have all said that to us on more than one occasion. What prompted you to write this book? Well, this was my first book. So my second book is, is, is What's Wrong With Me, which is a book about midlife, because um, I think the parenting book I wrote, because 
I wanted to find out what was going on. <laughs> there was a real mm. disconnect between their childhood and then this next stage. And I thought, this is a bit odd. They seem to be very cross with me quite a lot of the time. And <laughs> it's really quite painful, this separation. And perhaps I can do some things to ease the separation. I had a column in the Sunday Times parenting column at the time. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to use everything I can to find out what's happening here physically and emotionally. And I'll just put it all in a book because I was, uh, you know, have a strong social media following. And, and a lot of mums were saying to me, oh, my daughter's being really horrible to me and I don't appear to have done anything wrong, or have I? And I interviewed right. um, a, a really amazing author and she's uh, kind of at the forefront of adolescent mental health in the States, Lisa Damore. And she kind of explained it all to me so simply that I thought, oh, well, why have I never read this anywhere? And I do a lot of reading around parenting because I write a column about it. It's my job to bring new Man. thinking. Why have I never read the just simple day-to-day -day stuff, not the extreme mental health issues that many teenagers can go through or may go through, just that very simple day-to-day -day stuff where you'll do something nice, they'll get very cross with you and say, mum, what's wrong with you? And you'll say, well, I've just <laughs> I just did something I thought was really, really good. And there's all, obviously quite a different dynamic between girls and mums and boys and dads. There is a, you know, there is a gender difference in, in the way yes. that, you know, you're their foremost female role model. They're little sponges. They absorb everything about you. So they know exactly what upsets you. They know what makes you happy there. They have observed you at close quarters for such a long time. You have a unique relationship, I think, with, with a teenage daughter and their neurology is changing, which I didn't really know about. And I just thought it would be, wouldn't be fair not to share this because if I can take a step back and work out what's going on, then I'll react in a different way and perhaps it'll be a little bit more harmonious at home. And that was kind of a very simple, I just had no idea it would be a bestseller and that so many mums Amazing. would say, oh my goodness, now mm. I know this. I'm not, we're not having these raging arguments all the time. And I'm not, you know, getting furious about a messy room because that's, just not the thing to get furious about. So it was right. just really interesting. And I thought, I'll just share it because I come from, you know, editing magazines. My whole thing is community and sharing information for women. So exactly like you, Liz, it's, you know, we find out these things as journalists, don't we? We think we should share them because yes. women don't get told everything. <laughs> no. And, you know, there's so much, isn't there, surrounding baby care and early childhood. And then in my experience, it just sort of dwindles off and we're expected to sort of know it or just sort of just to assume that it's all going to be be okay because we've brought them up and you know we've brought them as semi-adults into the world and kind of that's okay now but actually in my experience the problems obviously don't go away and in fact if anything they get bigger and more profound because they're potentially more life-changing and you know I can't just drop them off on a play date because that's going to keep them busy for a bit you know you do have to be very present and, and very aware you know of, of what yeah. they're going through and and be prepared to be supportive without being you know, to sort of helicoptering, I guess, to use that word. I mean, one helpful thing that somebody once said to me is that, you know, your children are not your friends and they don't need another friend. They actually need a parent. And, you know, you do that with love and with friendship, but there is a very distinct difference, don't you think? I think there's, I'm, I mean, I wrote a whole chapter on she's not your friend um, because I see it quite a lot. And I think it's 
comes out of love. Um, you know, my daughter, my best friend, which is what, you know, when I sure. hear that phrase, it make, make sense shivers down my spine because I know it from everyone <laughs> I've interviewed. It's the absolute worst way to parent um, a growing teenage girl. It, it really makes them feel incredibly unsafe. They need boundaries. Wow, really they, unsafe. Yeah, yeah, they need boundaries. Gosh. They need something to lean against. They need to know that you will step in if they make a mistake or if they risk things. If they think you're just alongside them, jollying them along as they try all these risky things or trying to, you know, dress like them, be like them, you know, it, they are forming their their own identity. It's so, forming your right. identity is probably the most important thing you do as a human being. And they don't want someone else, they don't want to form your identity. <laughs> they want to form their own identity. So trying to be very similar to them is really unhelpful, actually, for them, for teenage girls. I don't make any, um, I very rarely say in the book, you should or you must do this. But there are two things that I'm quite firm on because of the science and the evidence around it is do not be your child's friend, boy or girl, and really be aware of um, what they're looking at and taking phones into their rooms. They're the only two things I say, mm -hmm. absolutely, these are the things that, that are bad parenting. That is a bad way to approach it. So, mm. um, And I say that based on the science of people I've interviewed. But I think they really, you know, even if, even if they, they break the boundaries, even if they don't keep to the rules that you set, they need to know that you are the person trying to keep them safe because it's a very vulnerable anxious time building your identity and um, we found out um very recently in the last sort of four or five years that their brains are basically being taken apart from the age of about 13 to 25 and put back together again so everything is a very vulnerable state so they need adult guidance they they are still children and adolescents and you yes. are the adult so being a friend during that time is you know they've got lots of friends they don't really need that they need something to lean against and to know that you will stick to your word because if you if you say oh I, I know I said come back by uh, one a.m. but you didn't get back by two but that's okay you were having fun we like to have fun they then yeah. think well how can I trust that person with anything else everything is bendable everything is flexible I and and everything in their lives at that point is flexible and bendable and changing they need something that won't change and somebody described it to me in a really great way actually is it you you're holding a rope and on the other end of the rope is your teenager. And they're flailing around all over the place. And your only job is to hold the rope. <laughs> That's all you're there to do. Right. You've just got to hold it tight because they can pull against that and it makes them feel incredibly safe. So um, I really took that that's on and I really thought, you know, good. those... those I love that. Yeah, those, those, that's the way to You're be. not diving into the water to pull them out, no. are you? You're just letting them hold onto the rope. You hold the rope because there's nothing's going to happen to them while you're holding the rope. And you can do that for the rest of their lives. But if you, if you let go to step in and, and, and pull them out, if you let go to push them away, if you let it, all of those things, all of those kind of comparisons, it's, it's really just holding the rope steady for them so that that's the thing they're leaning against. And I think that therefore makes it feel a little easier <laughs> because as long as you're uh -huh. holding the rope, you might make mistakes, but you're still just holding that rope there for them. I found raising uh, teenagers much, much harder than newborns and toddlers. And I know yeah, I when I when I wrote the book, my editor came up to me and said, do you mean this? Because, you know, there, there'll be an outcry, people saying that toddlers are really hard work and nobody has any sleep. I said, I absolutely do mean it. It's way, yeah. way more difficult because they want to talk to you at midnight. You know, they want to talk to mm -hmm. you at impromptu mm -hmm. times. They need you and only you, whereas I think with toddlers, you've put them to bed. Once you've sorted that out, they're generally asleep. 
grandma could put them to bed, uh, childcare could put them to bed. <laughs> it, you know, usually it's it's going to work okay, but with with teenagers, they absolutely only want you, and you're the person that has to be available, and that could be at any point yes. during the day. And and as you say, the risk factors because that bit of their brain is developing, and they're testing things is is all is off the scale. You know, I mean, they're doing things. You know, getting into cars learning to ride motorbike, sure. all of these things. Which yeah, are, no, it's which life-changing are, stuff, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah, and, you know, you can go to prison at 18. So, you know, I mean, yes. it's, you know, it's decisions that are made and very simple life choices mm. that have such a profound effect on on everything. In, I want to come back to one point that you just said earlier on, and that was about not having uh, phones in the bedroom. Mm. At what point did that change? Because, you know, my youngest has just turned 13 and that is such a battle. And, you know, only yeah. last week we were having this conversation. He had it under his pillow and I said, come on, you know, that's got to come out of your room. And he said, listen, it's switched off. It's on flight mode. It's my alarm clock. It wakes me up with a vibrational alarm. I said, right, here's my alarm clock. There's your alarm, but the phone is coming out of the room. And, you know, it, it was a battle. I can't, you know, begin to tell oh. you he was not happy. My two eldest were the first generation to have phones. So we're the first generation of parents to be dealing with mobile phones. And for the book, I researched, I looked at a lot of the research around it here and in the States, um, social media, access to mobile phones, access to screens generally, actually. And I talked to lots of experts in adolescent mental health and While screen time is a bit of a distraction, it really isn't about how long they're on screens. It's more what they're seeing. The only thing that came through strongly, and I was advised by everybody, is they cannot be looking at their phones during the night when their brains are in a very different state, when people are in a different place, when they're all on their own. It's the worst thing. It's the worst thing that that can, that will affect their mental health. So, take their phones that have what they call a digital sunset. Now, when I tried to set this, because I didn't set mm. it at the beginning with my 13-year-old, my eldest, because we didn't really know about, you know, what was what was happening, what they were looking at and things. But once I found yeah, this so out... so now it's changed. You know, everyone's yeah. on Snapchat and TikTok and it's much more virulent. Well, I took it away as soon as I found it out. And I have to say, probably for a year, it's not, I'm not exaggerating she was absolutely furious with me she said she her friends would abandon her she would be left out she would be bullied at school all the the things only one without the phone it's an addiction it (laughs) really is an addiction and I had said I'm not saying you can't have the phone I'm saying you can't have it in your room Um, and we had a rule that we would have access to the phone if we were worried about something so we would have the passwords if we were worried but otherwise we wouldn't infringe their privacy because privacy is really important Mm -hmm. to teenagers um, but I, it was awful. It was really awful. And actually, my husband cracked and didn't tell me. <laughs> he oh, couldn't bear it. Rain. He really couldn't. But well, no. he, was, he had the wool pulled over his eyes. He, I remember my eldest right. saying to him, well, I can have my iPad because I can't get online on that, onto social media. I can only get onto the... <laughs> See, he's not really engaged in social media, my husband. And when I found it, I said, what's going on here? And she said, oh, well, dad said I can have my iPad. And I said, well, you can't. <laughs> Um, and then I right. had a chat. Yep. Obviously, had a chat with my husband about us both being on the same page. But he, he, it was such a. She was so upset with us and so cross with us. He, he found it really hard to deal with. It was really. But honestly, if you again not being their friends, it is the thing. It's the time that the most damage could possibly be done during the night. Okay. So, 
If you're firm on one thing, absolutely be firm on that. But negotiate. I mean, we said, okay, no Mm -hmm. phones in the room after 7 p.m. in the evening. And we knew that there would be a negotiation. And I felt that she had to feel she had some say in it and some control over it. And we agreed on 8 o'clock. And then gradually over the years, it got later. And I think from 17, I said, you can have it in your rooms. But by that point, they had read a lot, heard a lot. And they didn't want their stuff on and they knew it was affecting them no. at night. And um, we have a bowl in in a cupboard in the kitchen that the, all the phones went into. And for a while they were just popping their phone in there. But your the alarm clock is the, the thing, isn't it? Because um, yes, it is. that's the problem, isn't it? They need their alarm and then they need to... I, know, I certainly know with my son sometimes he needs to see all his stuff first thing in the morning and he likes to go through it before he comes downstairs and gets ready for school. So it's uh-huh. it's a balance. But I think, you know, between 13 and 17, well, between whenever you're given phones and, and sort of 17, they shouldn't have them on their own in their room in yeah. the dark. I mean, obviously, you know, phones are there primarily, you know, for keeping in touch and for maybe even calling people. But how do we, as the children get older, in your experience, kind of get the balance right? How do we maintain the right level of contact? You know, should we be tracking them and messaging them? And, you know, but obviously we want to keep them on the straight and narrow, but we don't want to overdo it. We don't want to interfere. How do you touch base, particularly with your older ones? It's hard, isn't it? Because we, it's the best thing is to not to demonise phones and for them right. to start, for them to learn themselves and to, to make them, you know, they need qualities where they can make themselves feel safe so that they are in control of their own safety. We have something called Find My, the the Find My iPhone thing, which is the only tracking we have. And we all have that because my eldest at the moment is travelling across Europe and she might be in touch, she might not, you know, but I have asked, said to her that you know you need to keep that on so that we know where you are in case anything happens and she's she's fine with that so the basis of of any of our children having the phone is that we'll have find my iphone on it so we can see where they are it's just very helpful and it's also it stops us texting them and saying where are you when are you going to be out for dinner where are you yes (laughs) what time Mm -hmm. i think but i think i'm personally and from what i've learned and everybody's different every family is different I don't have access to their phones, so I don't, I don't invade their privacy with their messages unless I can see something serious is happening to them from a mental health point of view or from, you know, a physical point of view, and I'm I'm worried about it. So I Maybe. feel like we need to teach our kids from very early on how to keep themselves safe and what might be the risks that they're going through, and they need to feel in control of that. I co-host a podcast called Postcards from Midlife, and we have a private Facebook group, and there are a lot of parents on there worried and always asking, can I put a tracking thing on the phone? You know, should I be going through all their messages every night? Should I be doing, I think hands off. I know that's a, that makes people panic is better than being in deep in it, but you know, constantly having reviewing conversations. What are you looking at? How are you seeing things? Where are you going? You know, all of that constantly, but quietly alongside them, not face to face in front of them, finding out what they're doing, chatting with them is is a good way of of tracking their kind of feelings and, you know, they need to bring it to you. There's a really great phrase that um, a therapist who worked really hard on a, a chat line, help chat line for uh, adolescents taught me and she said it's pot plant parenting. You're not actively saying, what are you doing today? How are you doing that? How are you protecting yourself from this? <laughs> you know, having, let's talk really? about this moment. You're just around. And you might be watching a telly program about, you know, where there's 
conversations about teenagers and sexuality and that might prompt a conversation but you're just being around you're not sitting them down at any point for the big let's talk about sex conversation you're just pot plant right. you're just like a pot plant in the background love it and that's what yeah. they need you're just pr- producing a cup of tea and saying oh how was how was your day today rather than tell me what happened at school today <laughs> you're just yes. about so if you can maintain you know, and it's you've got to be very strong because we're always worried, aren't we? We go from naught to catastrophizing in two seconds as parents. And I think if you totally. can just be around, that's probably better. And they know when you're going to be around. I'm not saying don't work or be at home all, all the time. I'm just saying, you know, I'm going to be around on Saturday morning. Should we have a cup of tea? That kind of thing. Just po- pottering around mm-hmm. with them. And actually, I learned the most about my teenagers just by pottering around with them you know I made sure on Saturday afternoons I was kind of in the kitchen pottering about when they surfaced with friends and things like that (laughs) that, that's when I I learned what they were doing and how they did but I just was there I wasn't sort of trying to direct it guide it or get involved in it I was just there it's it's a real time to step back teen years I think. Mm. I love that the simple ideas of keeping conversations going and I know that you've got a whole chapter actually in your parenting book about rituals including bananagrams which I have to say is one of our family favourites love love a bit of bananagrams um, and of course you know the TV as well you know you, you say that you didn't allow TVs or laptops in the kids bedrooms until 16 or so so you can actually sit and watch stuff together if you want to watch TV you know let's all gather and, and do that. Yes I think one of the ways of sort of protecting their mental health checking how anxious they may be or what, what they're going through is is having moments when you're all in the same room together and I knew if screens, and I'd been advised by experts, were in their room, then they would go to their room to watch things and they wouldn't be watching mm-hmm. things with us. So I was pretty firm about the rituals. You know, they're, they're, rituals are very good from a neurological point of view. They're very soothing. You know, having something that happens regularly every time is quite nice in a period of enormous change, which is what teenage is. So we would have a sort of it's usually Thursday or Friday nights. And even when they were teenagers, even with the girls, I would say, can can you just come and watch something with us before you go out? And we'd watch, I mean, we loved watching Ghosts and, you know, Ted Lasso, Modern Family. Oh my gosh, Ted Lasso. My boys and I have just yeah. discovered Ted Lasso. And that is our ritual. And, you know, we'll gather in the kitchen early in the evening and often on a Friday night, say, and it will be, you know, let's make a bowl of pasta. You know, should we have some Ted Lasso? Yeah. And that is a lovely ritual. And it might, you know, it might only be one episode, maybe two, you know, it's half an hour, an hour, whatever. Mm. But it's just that moment, isn't it, when you're actually sat together and there's the sort of the preamble and then there's the clearing up afterwards. And you're, as you say, you're pottering and chatting and, you know, maybe bringing up issues that have come up in the show or maybe it sort of triggers conversations about things in a very easy way and you know you're not making eye contact because you're sitting beside each other Mm. or maybe you're you know doing the washing up or the clearing up you know wiping down the surfaces or whatever so you're engaged in something but you can also actually have you know quite meaningful conversations can't you even during that moment it's about connections these small connections constant connections are the absolute they're the roots of parenting a teenager keeping a connection because it is a time when you could completely lose that connection because everything is completely different from what you've just been through in their childhood. And I think, you know, watching things together, then chatting is a very strong connection. And sometimes we think we have to do something really dramatic to help them when they're going through dreadful problems. I've, I've certainly talked to experts who said, you know, if you if you are dealing with children with extreme and, and teenagers with extreme mental health issues, things they're really struggling to deal with, 
it's often very simple, this way of parenting them and helping them. It's just being connected to them. And I think we think we have to do quite dramatic things and, you know, up, up, the whole family has to have upheaval. It doesn't. It really just needs to be, you know, watching the chase for half an hour is way more important mm-hmm. perhaps than four hours of ther- family therapy. It's probably the best thing you can do in <laughs> times of strife and trouble. I uh, certainly find after yeah. huge disagreements, I will the next day because the rupture and repair is a, is a rule of therapy for teenagers. It's not really the rupture that's ever the problem. It's the repairing of it that's the really important okay. thing. So if everyone can say sorry if you can get over it, if you can be non-judgmental, non-critical, if the repair bit is really good and healthy and kind and warm, which sort of sitting down and watching telly is with them, you know, we'll watch an, half an yes. hour of the chase and I'll plan it in no, after we've had some big argument or some all falling out and um, we'll just sit and chat about that. And then you are then nice. close again. And from that closeness, you can start to repair the kind of distance that might have occurred over something that's happened. And, you know, knowing that roller coaster of rupture and repair is really important during the teenage years. You just have to put in very, very simple things, I think, that will help. Music is very mm-hmm. helpful as well. You know, we often create mm-hmm. little playlists for each other, which keep us connected as nice. well. It's just just tiny, thoughtful things rather than enormous, gigantic things that we feel are probably going to be quite hard to do. And it's not hard. It's easy and it's within our gift as parents. I think we worry too much sometimes. What shows do your kids love, perhaps, that, that you don't? I mean, how, how do you find common ground? Because it's sometimes quite hard, isn't it, when you do want to sit and watch something? And they well, say, yes. Oh, but I really want to watch this. And you think, oh, no. Well, my, <laughs> my um, youngest is a huge uh, Marvel fan. Right. And it's literally my least favourite genre of film or um, tv <laughs> but we've had mm-hmm. to watch quite a lot of the flash which drives me mad <laughs> you just have to do it you just have to suck it up don't you, you do really? I mean, yeah. my, you know often we're, we're, we're choosing a family movie and I, you know i can hear myself saying this now nothing animated yeah or involving a superhero and obviously you know i'm I, hands up i've got that wrong haven't well I? I should just be going yeah sure what, what, what you just you have to, i mean i had to watch the whole of the lord of the rings film of trilogy because all of them like that and I absolutely hate it you know they're quite nerdy my kids in their kind of likes my Mm -hmm. I remember my youngest really liking a lot of Japanese animation for a while because she loves drawing anime anime and she loved it and I found it quite difficult to watch but we went to an anime festival and (laughs) you just have to I mean that's the harder bit isn't it as as you know you can yeah, sit through Teletubbies when they're little. <laughs> yes, but, you, you know, can. having to sit through the third Lord of the Rings film uh, in the week and then sit through it again the following week is, is you know, it's an, that's some of my best parenting moments doing that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you deserve every medal. One of our family favourites, particularly in the winter, is Strictly. And, you know, I find that that covers all ages and all bases. And, you know, even the boys will get into it because they'll say, I mean, they usually have some sort of young fit. TikTok or whatever on there now anyway, probably to catch the young, the young boys. But, you know, there's so much sort of gymnastics and agility and personality and pizzazz that comes out of it. So that is definitely a, a really good ritual that, you know, even when my kids are away from home, they might actually be watching it at the same time or, or talking to me about it. What do you think of the results? Did you agree? Yeah, I think it's nice because it's got a bit of comedy in it as well. And I think one of the uniting factors in anything you watch 
is comedy, isn't it? We watched a, a great BBC sitcom called Here We Go with um, Jim Howick, who's in Ghosts and he was in various CBeebies things. And I think they just love that idea of being connected to someone who's been in things before that they recognise, but it's also funny. They love funny, don't they? And if they recognise the person, like Strictly, because my son's a massive football fan and there'll be the old football person on there and he'll watch for that as well. So it's quite, it's just a connecting thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. How ultimately then will we know that they're really all right? Are there, are there signs that can we can take from this that make us think, oh, phew, that's okay then? <laughs> well, I mean, controversially, it's up to them, isn't it? I mean, I think that's the hardest thing because they don't belong to us. We can't shape them and craft them. And as you know, every single child is completely different. They can have an almost identical response from mum and dad and caregivers with them. But, you know, they're very different personalities. Their neurology is incredibly different. And I think we just, we're letting them go. If we've let them go successfully and they're off in the world doing I mean, I just count it a success. They're all alive at the end of the day. I just think it's really that sense. I think particularly hard for Gen X women, maybe like us, we've we've had to control so much and be in charge of so much and be so good at home and so good at work and so good here and achieve all of this these things. And we were, you know, buried under a huge pile of um, parenting books, you know, be involved, don't be involved breastfeed till they're five, don't breastfeed, you know, put them to bed and let them cry, let them sleep with you. We had all of that going on. So I think we feel very in charge on the need to be in charge. But actually what I learned was just to completely let go and, you know, real, let them do, do a lot of DIY stuff themselves, let them be bored, let them do their stuff, let them, you know, fail, get things wrong. I back off completely with academic qualifications. It's of no interest to me what they do or how they do it. Yes. I just want them to be happy at whatever university or further education they choose. So letting go yes. is stepping mm-hmm. back and just watching these humans. And I think it's a real privilege to see a human being kind of come into clarity through those teenage years. And I just, every time I see the girls, I think, God, that's fascinating that they've got this view on that. Oh, that's so interesting. And I learned so much from them. You know, when my eldest turned 21 in the summer, I just took a moment to take stock. And I didn't think, oh, isn't that great that, you know, I've obviously been quite a good mum because she's very happy and blah, blah. I just thought, wow, look at this human being that's created herself and moulded herself to be this kind of amazing girl that's going off and doing really interesting things and making the odd mistake, but, you know, making up for it and learning from it and having a really very different, more caring view of herself, actually, perhaps than my generation of women. I just, I'm just so impressed by them all the time. I, but I think it's because they've done it themselves. And I think if we can step back, drop our ego around it, not compare ourselves to other parents, not be worried about what other parents are doing, that's probably when they're all right, when you think they're going to be all right, when you just let them be who they're going to be. Mm. Love it. Lorraine, such a positive note to end on. So much wisdom there. I'm so grateful for your time. It's been really lovely to chat to you. Thank Thank you. you. Well, the biggest thank you again to Lorraine Candy. I personally found that very helpful. Well, hopefully not too late for some of my older ones and certainly my younger one as well, but also good to share if you are grandparenting, for example, hopefully some really helpful information there as well. I love that expression, rupture and repair, because 
yeah, things will break, but we can fix them. Always good to end on a positive. And a big thank you again to TV Licensing for partnering with us for this episode. You can check out tvl.co.uk forward slash Liz. They have a really helpful checklist for all the things you might need to know to help your child get ready to fly the nest. Well, we'll be talking more about empty nests on Instagram. So do come and say hello, share your stories. We are at Lizelle Wellbeing and I am personally there at Lizelle Me. I will be back with another episode in just a few days, but until then, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle. This episode was produced by Chesie Bent for Fresh Air Production with additional production support from Anushka Tate and Ellie Smith. <laughs>